KCSU-FM Stanford, welcome to another edition of Hearsay Culture. My name is Dave Levine. I'm an associate professor at Elon University School of Law, an affiliate scholar at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School, and a visiting research collaborator at Princeton's Center for Information Technology Policy. Thank you for joining me on the show today. Uh, today I'm very excited to have on Professor Michael Shudson of Columbia University, author of the recently, and by recently, you know, late last year, uh, released book, The Rise of the Right to Know, Politics and the Culture of Transparency, 1945 to 1975. Now, regular hearsay culture listeners might might immediately say, uh-oh, uh, 1945 to 1975, well, that predates the Internet. Uh, shocking. But uh, you would also recall uh, that I have had on a fair number of historians uh, most recently, uh, Michael's uh, colleague uh, and student, uh, Ben Peters, uh, who was on a couple of weeks ago discussing his book, How Not to Network a Nation. Um, but we have often focused on the history of information systems and principles around which the Internet has been organized. Uh, one of the big areas of focus, certainly in recent years on hearsay culture, has been this question of what we mean by transparency. And transparency is a topic which, of course, broadly impacts our understanding of what the internet is and now increasingly <clears throat> as we've discussed with some folks on the show what it means in the world of regulating robotics and artificial intelligence but in michael's wonderful readable well annotated and thoroughly enjoyable uh, book on the rise of the right to know Michael is focusing on a very important question, which is not well understood, I think, in our literature, but what, but which needs to be understood, which is why in this era from 1945 to 1975 did the right to know have and create such currency. As Michael talks about in the book, the concept of the right to know was fleetingly referenced uh, at the time of the founding of the nation, but then pretty much disappeared for the most part as a principle of uh, government operations until roughly the post-World War II era, where there were long-standing discussions about how much information could be shared out of government and why. <clears throat> this book, as Michael points out in the introduction and emphasizes throughout, is not as much a normative discussion of whether information should be public or why information would or would not be public today, but rather why it is that this principle rose during that 30-year period. And that period from post-World War II to you know roughly the end of the Vietnam War is a pretty critical era uh, from an information systems perspective. Uh, coming out of World War II, of course, the world was dealing with a rebuilding process that was emphasized in areas uh, in Europe through the Marshall Plan, but also generally through a goal of reimagining the world in a different image than one that led to World War II. And then, of course, we saw, we saw this issue reappear uh, in the Vietnam era. And, of course, the side wars that existed in places like Cambodia, which have also not received as much attention as they might in these discussions. Of course, no discussion of transparency within this era uh, could not discuss the Watergate scandal, and we'll talk a little bit about that, but really what we're going to do today is spend time looking at this history with an eminent scholar, sociologist, and historian in the field, and dig into this question of why it happened, 
Now, to be clear, Michael's book does offer implications for the world we have today, and of course we will talk about that too, but I really am going to drill down on this history. By way of very brief introduction, uh, Michael is a professional of journalism at Columbia University. He is a sociologist and American historian. He is joining us from his office at Columbia University via Skype on April 27, 2016. Michael, thank you so much for joining me today on Hearsay Culture. Yeah, it's a pleasure, David. Thank you. So, Mike, let me start with a question that I always ask my authors. Uh, for those that aren't as familiar with your work, uh, can you tell us a bit more about your background and why you chose to write this book now? Uh, my background is uh, I'm educated as a sociologist. That's where my PhD comes from, sociology. Uh, and most of my research has been historical. Um, this includes books on particularly on the news media and the evolution of uh, professional professionalism notions of objectivity in American journalism uh, from colonial times to the present and also I worked more recently on changing notions of citizenship in different eras of American history um, and that led me to uh, a, a book um, 1998 called The Good Citizen uh, that made me think that a lot of writing and thinking at the time that saw American citizen as in sharp decline from a better world, particularly the 1945 to 60 period of um, uh, where you have uh, works like uh, Robert Putnam's Bowling Alone that um, saw a decline of community since then um, uh, rampant rise of consumerism and individualism and um, difficulty for people learning um, and having the experiences that allow them to come together in deliberative forums. Um, that didn't seem right to me and I began thinking about the ways in which um, after 1945 to 60s uh, we became a better democracy, not a worse one. Um, and those ways include some obvious ones um, that, of course, Professor Putnam was well aware of, that um, women uh, and uh, minorities got considerably more power in um, participating in government than ever before. And um, But there were some other things that seemed to me not to... things that seemed to me neglected in um, Professor Putnam's work and the work of most others. Uh, and one of those was a growing sense of, that, of transparency. I'll, I'll just give one example. Um, uh, actually a complicated one like most examples are, but um, in 1961 a survey uh, published in the Journal of American Medical Association found that 12% of doctors uh, told their cancer patients that they had cancer, 12%, and the wow. others did not. Wow. Uh, huh. By 1980, that 12% who were frank with their, or reasonably frank with their patients about their cancer, had risen to 98% hmm. between 1960 and 1980. That, uh, those figures just stunned me when I came upon them. Yeah. Um, and uh, I said, what, you know, what is it? that was going on in those years. What 
Um, what changed in medical education, what changed in medical ethics, what changed in the practice of medicine that would have led to such a sharp development in um, how doctors talk to their patients. Um, now, that's not a primary subject of the book, but it's emblematic of the kinds of changes that that took place in this period primarily uh, in the mid-1960s to mid-1970s, but having roots in the, the immediate post-World War II era. So that I, I thought that you know, here was a subject that we all know about. We all know about the ways in which, um, or some of the ways in which, things are more open and transparent than they used to be. Um, um, most of us, that, that is those of us, say, over 40, know about it um, because we've seen it uh, in, in um, labeling of food packages at the supermarket. Um, and their nutritional elements and contents are, are reasonably well labeled now. They were almost unlabeled in 1945. So what happened? Um, and that, that became the subject of my, my book. So, Michael, because you're dealing with a lawyer um, interviewing you in this format, um, I always like to define terms. Now, that, of course, is not a legal concept per se, but it's something that lawyers enjoy doing. But I think in this instance, it's very important to understand some of these words and phrases that, as you point out, have, have become, to some degree, received wisdom today, but as we will talk about shortly, have not always been. Um, and, and perhaps I should start with perhaps the hardest question, and one that I suspect that I could probably leave and go get a sandwich and, and you could spend the next 40 minutes discussing. But let, let's start fundamentally. So what would be your definition, before we even get the right to know, what would be your definition of transparency? Uh, tra well, let, let me um, do this in, in a two-part way. Please. Uh, first, um, one thing I hear a lot when I talk about this subject is, well, you know, what's this 1945 to 75 period? Didn't the founding fathers yeah. give us transparency? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, to which the answer is no. Um, they did not. They would not have, um, uh, most likely, would not have supported many of the uh, reforms that we now take for granted from the 1960s, 70s, and, and since. Um, the founders believed that um, elites should rule, um, and the role of the public um, was to um, learn enough about, that is, the public being white males owning property, um, that is to say the, the eligible voters. Um, their job was to be able to distinguish between uh, candidates for office who were um, men of sound reputation and um, in in their own communities, and would not become dem were not and would not be demagogues in office, um, and those who were demagogues, um, who should not you shouldn't vote for uh, that. And and after you voted and the election is held, you should go back to your plow or your uh, your store or 
whatever your occupation was, and wait for the next election before you got very involved in politics again. That was the understanding um, of most of our founders. Um, and uh, transparency, well, you know, the, the U.S. Senate met entirely in secret for its first six years. Um, the, the, there was no expectation that um, newspapers would report, they would comment, they would editorialize, um, but were there um, reporters you know, roaming the halls of the Congress trying to buttonhole uh, members of the Congress or their staffs? Well, they didn't have staff, uh, staff so, um, and no reporter, there weren't reporters in the halls of Congress. Newspapers were run, were one and two person operations, um, and they reprinted stuff from other newspapers, mostly from London. Um, and there was very little local news, and the, the kind of um, surveillance society by which I mean uh, people, in, individual citizens, um, civil society organizations, NGOs, newspapers and such, being surveillant of or observant of or monitoring the work of government, um, that was not something that the founders anticipated um, uh, or, in my opinion, would have wanted. Um, so so that, that, that's part one. We, we haven't had something that we today call transparency um, from the beginning of, of the country. Uh, what I, I don't, in my book, define transparency as such. Um, uh, taking a stab at that, I would simply say that um, government power is has become more and more important to um, the everyday lives of of American citizens. Um, you know, un until early in the twentieth century, the largest and uh, the largest department of, of government and the one that an individual citizen was most likely to encounter was the post office. Um, the, the kinds of um, connections of government to our lives, not only in, um, in defense appropriations, uh, which uh, relate to our tax paying, um, uh, social security, which relate to our um, economic well-being in uh, and our health, um, uh, particularly in retirement, um, and uh, you know, th so many ways in which government regulation of the economy, of the workforce, of the environment, um, touch on us every day. That's a 20th century development, um, and it's one in, in which an, an ordinary citizen has more and more reason to want to be uh, aware of and informed about um, what the government is up to. Um, it touches us. And uh, that has led to um, uh, of all kinds of uneasiness about how much the government is doing, knew, how much the government is doing and how little we know about it. Um, transparency is uh, uh, a set of procedures and values and norms uh, that say that citizens 
should be informed about what the government is doing um, and that what the government is up to is in the end, although not proximately, but ultimately in the end, the responsibility of American citizens. So um, we can't be responsible uh, if we don't know. So that I, I, I don't have a more precise definition um, than that, but I, I think that is the general premise of transparency-related uh, practices, laws, and reforms. We're chatting with Professor uh, Michael Shudson of Columbia University, author of the book The Right uh, I'm sorry, The Rise of the Right to Know, Politics and the Culture of Transparency, uh, 1945 to 1975. Um, you know, Michael, yeah, you know, I, I frankly, uh, I think given uh, what I've seen of scholarship around transparency, um, you've taken a, a better stab at defining it than many uh, who have written in this space simply because it is so hard to define and it is so loose. And, and perhaps we could uh, drill down a little bit more on this on this idea of the right to know and I, I do want to get in this history which is fascinating and, and as I mentioned the introduction indeed I think instructive with regard to where we are today um, but I, I, maybe I want to ask you a two-part question initially on, on the idea of the right to know from a from a legal standpoint the, the very word right um, or having a right uh, engenders debate um, so, so when we think about, before we define or think about the right to know, I'm, I'm curious how you would explain the nature of this right to know about government, which, as you point out throughout the book, is really more about disclosure of information than it is anything more. But let, let's start there, if you would. You know, what, what is the nature of this right? From where do you see, based upon this history, this right deriving? Uh, I mentioned in the book, but not in the title of the book, that what I'm really interested in is is what I call a cultural right to know, rather than um, a legal um, right to know. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think there is a legal right to know, although there may be in some specific domains, um, by legislation, not by the Constitution. Um, you know the 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 term uh, right to know doesn't appear in Supreme Court decisions in the late eighteenth or the nineteenth or even the early twentieth century. Uh, the term does not become the the right to know does not become part of the um, uh, of a general discourse uh, un until um, the general manager of the Associated Press in the nineteen forties starts using the term. Um, uh, the New York Times is impressed by the term in a new 1945 editorial, and the term begins to be used by a, a small group of journalists, but prominently placed in the late 1940s and early 1950s. Um, they're concerned about the growth of the, uh, of the powerful executive branch of government, and one in which they don't have the same kind of access to that they do to the Congress. Um, and uh, they uh, are increasingly disturbed by uh, forms of uh, executive secrecy. Uh, and, uh, and so they, by the early 1950s, become outspoken on what they're calling a, a right to know. Uh, and, and they're um, basically lobbying for 
um, open meeting laws and uh, public disclosure requirements uh, for administrative agencies and so forth. Um, that's that's a, a relatively new development, um, and uh, it, it, it's and even in efforts in the 1950s and 1960s that um, members of Congress would repeatedly um, uh, cite the founding fathers as the uh, as legitimating their interest in more disclosure from the executive to the Congress and to the public. Um, uh, James Madison and Thomas Jefferson and others who who were never um, advocating uh, uh, disclosure laws of the sort that were then passed in the 1960s, um, but uh, they didn't—they didn't quite understand, I, I think, um, uh, the members of Congress in the 1950s how original uh, their efforts were, uh, and they reasonably enough uh, sought to ground them in a long-standing, uh, well-endorsed um, uh, uh, American history. But I don't think they go back that way. Um, so the, the, the right to know what began to develop in the period I uh, examine most closely here is a, a sense that, well, a general sense, not a, not a precise sense, not here. here's the um, here's the clause of the Constitution we're talking about. It's um, a general sense that, gee, isn't isn't democracy really about openness? Isn't it really about public participation? Uh, it, it, aren't we at some level talking about the kind of slogans of the 60s about participatory democracy? Isn't that what we should be seeking? And then language about um, openness, transparency, and the right to know becomes part of the popular language. So, Michael, let, let me. Um, I, I think this is a good time to drill down on some of this history, um, and and in order to do that, uh, just to be absolutely clear about where this idea of the right to know falls within the panoply of what you write about, of course, citing other scholars, as the virtues of democracy. You point out throughout the book that uh, the right to know, which, which we're going to talk about in detail uh, now, uh, is a has been thought of as a secondary virtue um, rather than a primary one. And as I, as I was reading that, uh, and as I've been preparing uh, for uh, over the past few weeks for interviewing uh, Larry Lessig, uh, he has pointed out, and I'm curious about your reaction to it, and then kind of, if you would, define what we mean or what scholars have meant by secondary virtues in democracy and how the right to know falls into it. But he, he's, in his efforts to address campaign finance issues, which you also allude to, uh, and transparency uh, laws and elections in the book and talk about, uh, he's referred, and I think in a very effective way, um, to campaign finance issues as not the most important issue that voters have to focus on and that citizens have to focus on, but the first. And he's made the point that in or to the extent that one has an interest in substantive law like climate change or something else, right, in order to get to the policy goals that an individual seeks, 
that campaign finance issues have to be addressed. And so in that sense, it's not the most important, but it's the first. Putting aside campaign finance as a policy matter for a moment, is that the idea of a secondary virtue, as scholars have talked about it? And if not, or if so, how does the right to know arguably fall within that realm, even though, as, as you've also pointed out, it might be somewhere between a, a secondary and primary virtue, or indeed a primary one. So there's a lot there, and I'll let you unpack it as you choose. Uh, yeah, th- th- this is um, this is a hard um, issue. I think uh, uh, the, the the term secondary virtue comes from uh, the philosopher um, Alistair MacIntyre, and um, uh, he he thinks of secondary virtues. Um, he 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 imagines um, particularly um, Britain as a a place where uh, like rules of fair play um, are very very important to people. But he says those are really secondary virtues, um, which he defines as that secondary virtues. He says uh, concern the way in which we should go about our projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, but cultivating them will not assist us in discovering upon which projects we ought to be engaged. Um, so what should be our goals in life? That's that McIntyre's view is um, you know, that, that's a, a very complicated matter uh, on which we often can't agree. Um, secondary virtues are um, virtues of, of process, of um, hearing out the other side of uh, setting up um, rules and procedures by which we make decisions. It's not a matter of what what the decisions themselves should be. Um, uh, should we um, make provision for um, rapid global uh, climate change or not? That's, that's not a matter of a secondary virtue. Uh, but how we talk about those or in what forums we talk about or, or what the ground rules for discussion happen to be, those are the secondary virtues. And the, the reason I, I can casually suggest that transparency might be somewhere between primary and secondary um, is that it, in a democratic society, it, it's sometimes the these secondary virtues, which are the only ones that we can fully agree on. Um, if you go back to the, the Constitutional Convention, uh, the very first thing, not surprisingly, the, that they did was appoint a committee to come up with some rules for the convention to operate by, um, with, with some fascinating rules. Um, uh, like members of the convention were not permitted to read newspapers while other members are speaking. Um, so these are rules of of civility. They're rules of um, appropriate deliberative process. Uh, uh, and those are sometimes, sometimes we can't even agree on those, but those are the ones we need to be able to agree on to have a democratic society function at all. And in that sense, I, I'm not sure what Larry Lessig uh, meant, but there, there, uh, but if, 
if he meant by first yeah. uh, the ones without which you cannot um, um, you cannot do anything. Yes, uh, that's right. Yes, then then transparency is is um, if not the pr- a primary virtue, it is the first one you have to come to some agreement about. So let me ask you one more question just to follow up on that answer, Michael, before we take a very quick break, which is you, you point out and throughout the book, and I, I probably should have said this initially, so the way you structured the book uh, is by running through several seminal examples, which we're going to talk a few about a few of them after the break, of areas where society and or Congress were dealing with regulatory questions that led to a uh, discussion of and ultimately a focus on transparency and a right to know. Um, with regard to that issue, right? Um, and this is, and by the way, I, I want to be clear, right? For for and the hearsay culture listeners know this, but I want to be clear about this. Uh, discussing theory is precisely why uh, we have a long form interview. So I so I I know that uh, this is part of your book, but I I want to encourage you to go in that direction with the question I'm going to ask, which is you, you could make the argument, and you allude to it, that. Although there's a functional aspect of the right to know and transparency because, as, as Lessig has said and as, as you've uh, in a way said as well, right, you cannot get to the substance that you want without this procedural uh, element being put in place. There's certainly an argument, isn't there, that indeed a right to know could be a primary virtue of perhaps not a Republican government, as, as you allude to, uh, but certainly a democracy. So is it fair to say that a right to know is itself standing on its own a goal that we should seek aside from and independent from the substantive impact of having such a right? I, I, yes, I actually would agree with that. Um, uh, but we're then almost immediately into the often very messy details um, okay. and uh, for instance um, and this is anticipating where we'll go shortly on, on some of the specifics the, the Freedom of Information Act which yes. I assume we'll talk about in a, in a bit was, that was going to be my next question oh, right okay. after the break so go ahead yeah um, uh, as the drafters of it originally conceived it. It would have it would have had very few exceptions. In the course of the the, the legislation, um, nine exceptions. That is to say, um, instances where government would not have to disclose the information that some citizen re- requested or some person requested, um, uh, including, for instance. Um, Privacy, uh, including national security, um, I- including a variety of um, categories that, in the end, the law um, protects uh, protects the government from having to defend uh, to, to disclose the the way the law is supposed to work is that if you if the government official who's looking at the request from a person um, to disclose information says, oh, it falls in under category one or exemption two. Um, if, if they can't find that it fits an exemption, then they have to disclose it. 
that that's the understanding so the presumption is disclosure um, unless it falls into one of these protected categories um, you know that that's different uh, than uh, assuming that, that the, the default position is don't disclose the default position is supposed to be in the law disclose um, and that seems to me uh, appropriate for a democracy um, uh, to some degree necessary for a democracy but you have to work out um, exactly what are the constraints in a given area at a given time uh, that might prevent full disclosure and that that's an incredibly tricky problem. Yes. Yes. And I, you know, uh, well, let me take my break very quickly here, and then I want to get right into FOIA. Uh, you're listening to KZSU FM Stanford and Hearsay Culture with Professor Michael Shudson of Columbia University, author of the book The Rise of the Right to Know Politics and the Culture of Transparency, 1945 to 1975. Uh, KZSU is a nonprofit, non commercial radio station at Stanford University that requires donations from listeners like you to continue its diverse programming. Uh, you have a couple of ways to make a donation to KZSU. You can email our underwriting department at underwriting at kzsu.stanford.edu or go to the webpage for KZSU and click on Donate to KZSU. Uh, regardless, I, I hope that you continue to listen to the station. So, so Michael, let's, let's dive into some of those specifics. Um, FOIA is, uh, Freedom of Information Act, um, is colloquially understood to have come directly out of Watergate. But as you point out, uh, in, in again, at least from my estimation, a history that I've, I've not seen fleshed out, which is one of the reasons why this book is such an important contribution to our understanding of information systems and transparency today, to say that is is you know is, is almost to uh, really not tell the story. Of course, FOIA as as law predates Watergate, but then got its currency, perhaps, or you could disagree with that too, with the its Watergate scandal. Run through it, if you would, the, the key moments that led to the Freedom of Information Act that tie to this notion of this rise of the right to know. Okay, uh, well, the, the key, uh, I've organized the chapter about uh, Freedom of Information Act in the book around the career of a California congressman named John Moss, um, who came to the, he, he was a, um, a small businessman in Sacramento, um, had a junior college education, not beyond, uh, got involved in Democratic Party politics, served a couple terms in the California legislature, and then runs for Congress in 1952. Um, uh, a close election, he's elected, um, uh, comes to Washington in 1953, and um, at that time, uh, it's a Republican-controlled House, uh, and he's um, and he's a freshman in any case, so he's He's assigned to the, the lowliest of, of committees, and one being the post office and civil service committee. He he seeks some employment information from the civil service commission, um, and um, they respond to his request and they tell him no. Um, and he says, "What you know? What do you mean no? I'm a member of the Congress. 
<laughs> I just requested some information for the Congress and the people of the United States who who ultimately run this government and the Civil Service Commission is telling me I can't have that. <laughs> and uh, they said, yeah, that's what we're telling you. Um, you know, go, go back to Capitol Hill, we're busy. Um, and, uh, and so th this, this was astonishing and uh, horrifying to him. Uh, he, he, was, he was Mr. Smith goes to Washington. He was a naive believer in, in democracy and that as an elected representative of, of the people, he had every right um, to request and get information from the executive agencies that um, you know, are funded by the Congress of the United States and the taxpayers. So um, th that was the beginning of the Freedom of Information Act, um, you know, 13 years before it passed, um, two, only two years before he, be he became chair of a subcommittee on government information and began holding a decade worth of hearings uh, in which he heard, heard from and the public heard from one reporter after another talking about uh, their experiences in trying to get information out of the executive branch of government uh, and, and often failing. And um, Moss became a quite important figure in Washington because he also got heard from the reporters and others um, privately, uh, not necessarily in, in public testimony, about their difficulties, current difficulties, and he would um, call up the agencies they were not getting their information from and sometimes uh, was successful in, in, in intimidating the executive agencies to release the information they were withholding. But he was trying to craft some legislation that would make that a more automatic process. And that led to um, the, this FOIA, the Freedom of Information Act, in 1966. So it's several years, uh, well, six, seven, eight years before Watergate. Um, and it's not really involved in the um, Washington Post's um, Watergate in, in investigations, um, but after Watergate, 1974, uh, uh, the the Congress says, you know, this this was a nice idea, this law, but it's not working as well as we want. For instance, it it didn't provide any um, deadlines uh, by which uh, the executive agency would have to respond to a FOIA request. So. Um, so they, they could hold those requests forever. Um, the 1974 amendments are generally regarded as those that made the law um, uh, a vastly more uh, effective provision for people to get information. I, keep, I, I try not to say citizens because non-citizens are also eligible to use the law. Um, children are eligible to use the law. Just The law just says any person um, may request information uh, from the government. And, they're, they're and they, they are um, owed by the government. They are owed a response. Sometimes it takes a long time still. I mean, the law is, it more, is very imperfect. 
uh, but it has made a big difference nonetheless for journalists, historians, prisoners, corporations, and others who use it uh, to get information from the government. Now, um, the I th think one thing that, that should be said about this is that um, more than I had had any idea, the, the language that Moss and others used to promote the law was a Cold War language. Um, uh, Moss used the concept of what he called a paper curtain. Now, mm -hmm. everyone knows about the Iron Curtain. Uh, that was the, uh, the, the metaphor that uh, Winston Churchill um, arrived at for talking about how the Soviet Union um, held the people of Eastern Europe and and uh, the Soviet Union behind an iron curtain, unable to get information from um, uh, or about the West directly, uh, only from their government. Um, Moss said, well, you know, something like that is growing in the United States. Um, there's a paper curtain in Washington uh, keeping information from the American people. And um, so that, that was quite powerful language. And he, he directly accused uh, the Eisenhower administration and later the Kennedy administration um, of using Soviet-like tactics um, to, uh, to control the news, to control information, uh, to restrict uh, the range and accessibility of of the press, uh, and it was, it, and what he effectively, I think, uh, quite effectively, was able to say is um, using the language of the Cold War that the Soviet unions, uh, the Soviet Union, they're the bad guys. Um, how do we know they're bad guys? Because they are a closed society, and we're an open society. So the language of openness, the word transparency was not much used, if it was used at all, but openness um, was used and democracy was used as, as synonymous with a, a society in which people have access to the information that is used to govern them. Uh, so th it's, it's a fascinating story, I think, of um, how... Moss used the the images of the Cold War against the administration um, to open it up. We're chatting with Professor Michael Shudson of Columbia University, author of the book The Rise of the Right to Know on KZSUFM Stanford and Hearsay Culture. So, Michael, um, we're at the portion of the show that I call the unfair portion of the show and I call it unfair because um, we start running into time constraints um, and so you don't have the time necessarily to answer the question uh, to the extent that you like um, and so it's a real hedge a lawyer's hedge um, against uh, my previous representations that this is a long form interview uh, which is another lawyerly thing to do um, we have about 10 minutes left and so I, I do want to um, jump forward if you will recognizing of course that there is far more 
more that we could talk about with regard to this history, although I'm sure you can tie that history to the questions I'm going to ask. Um, but but in light of what you just um, laid out for us uh, with regard to uh, you know Cold War rhetoric uh, being used as a semantic cudgel, if you will, to uh, advanced uh, openness uh, in an era where there wasn't openness. Uh, I have a couple of questions. Let me start here. You know, if you fast forward to today, uh, again, we're recording on April 27, 2016. We are in a political, uh, truly, I think, insane primary season, and I'm not going to ask you uh, with uh, about political views, but rather this question. One of the uh, promises of the Obama administration, uh, indeed the first uh, executive orders that came out of the administration, literally in the first few days of the administration, were related directly to FOIA. Um, It's for uh, executive branch agencies uh, to come up with uh, robust, transparency plans for FOIA requests to be uh, met more quickly and on and on um, and there's you know there's an open debate that I think scholars like you and others uh, will be assessing over the coming you know uh, years with regard to how open the Obama administration has been. Uh, clearly, I think the Snowden revelations are the primary example of how much secrecy remains inside government. Um, but there, there's an open question with regard to this administration. So I'm not asking at this point, although you're welcome to offer an opinion as to the relative openness of the Obama administration, but focusing really on what your book is. I, I want to ask a couple of questions. First, when we think about the right to know, we think that the opposite of it is secrecy. Um, and yet, as as your book points out quite clearly, and as history points out, a right to know, and you've alluded to it already, doesn't come without exceptions to it. As you look at, from a historian's perspective, uh, given this history, as you look, you know, through you know the past eight or so years um, of our modern era of transparency. How productive and effective has the right to know been? Well, I I think it will be some time before um, historians closer to the topic than me have have gone through the record of the Obama administration and sees what the next administration is like. And I mean, I, I it's certainly fair to say that. Um, uh, people I talk to, journalists and and many legal scholars and others are have been disappointed by the Obama administration in terms of transparency and um, partly because, as you say, the, the o- President Obama began with such um, high um, aspirations for exactly that, for making transparency a, a um, charter value in his administration that turned out to be um, um, what shall we just say less than what he professed sure Um, um, in by which he turned out to be uh, no different from any other president before him Um, now uh, I I think I, I would Put it this way, and I don't know if this is uh, the the ideal formulation, but I I think uh, some of the um, 
uh, scholars who said, well, we have more secrecy than ever are right. But I think I'm right also that there's more information disclosed than ever. Um, uh, you know, it, it seems not to be a, a zero-sum zero game. Um, uh, we disclose more information in um, all kinds of um, aspects of governing. Um, there's a chapter in the book on the environmental impact statement and, and environmental uh, regulation, which is far more open uh, after the National Environmental Policy Act of 1970 than it ever was before. Um, and um, the Congress is more open. It, it, the Congress is not covered, by the way, by the Freedom of Information Act. It, that re, FOIA refers only to executive agencies. Um, the Congress exempted itself, uh, but uh, it was not exempt from this growing culture of transparency and in 1970 and after uh, developed a variety of um, procedures including television on, on the floor of, of the House and Senate and open committee hearings that uh, and even very important votes that had been secret before that are now public. Um, so in, in many very important ways um, we have more openness um, than ever before and the Obama administration did not roll that back. Um, uh, but, um, but we also had more secrecy um, and, and uh, justified by um, military necessity, justified in recent years by um, uh, the, the war on terror, so-called. And, um, and I, you know, I don't, I don't think there's an easy resolution of all of that. I don't, I don't think we, we know what the scorecard in the end looks like right now. So, uh, Michael, let, let me uh, fast forward again um, with regard to information technology and the Internet. Uh, you know, it's now become, I think, somewhat cliche that the early iterations of Internet philosophy around the idea of information wants to be free that John Perry Barlow wrote about um, has not uh, been the case. Um, and there are plenty of examples of that. Um, when we look at the Internet today, and, and information systems today uh, from an architectural standpoint. What, what lessons do you think uh, Internet scholars and Internet policy folks should be taking from the history that you outline in your book, The Rise of the Right to Know? Uh, I, I, I think the, the lessons would be... Um, First, that ours, with our era, say the last um, 50 years, uh, has been a more dramatic one than we sometimes give it credit for, uh, and a more progressive one than we sometimes give it credit for. Oh yes, we all know about this civil rights legislation. Um, we don't all know about how dramatic um, environmental legislation has been uh, toward um, sometimes actually improving the environment uh, and certainly uh, toward making environmental decision-making at the governmental federal level um, 
much more available to the public and to uh, in, in including environmental uh, groups that, that litigate against the government uh, because they are notified in time to do so. Um, they weren't notified at all before the 1970s. So the, uh, the, the first thing then is that uh, we have made some progress we can by w which uh, I think the lesson is we we could make some more progress. Um, you know, we we can budge um, uh, an incredibly gargantuan elephant um, sitting there in Washington um, and make it make the world a little better. Uh, so, uh, so I I think there's some reason for hopefulness in um, in the history I tell. Um, uh, a second lesson is questions about transparency are in fact complicated uh, and and an absoluteness about transparency is a mistake um, um, yes we want journalists to be able to access lots and lots of information um, do I want um, secrets of uh, the atomic bomb on the front page of the Washington Post? No, I don't. Uh, I think that would be dangerous um, uh, for all of us and for the world. Um, do I think that um, journalists themselves should also be transparent um, as much as they can, but I th uh, within certain uh, with certain limits, like their sources shouldn't be murdered because of things that uh, that journalists intentionally or inadvertently reveal. So the the, the whole and information technology is is a huge issue there on how journalists can protect their confidential sources in this country and abroad. Um, so, do I think journalists should be absolutely transparent? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, they're, they're, they can't do their work for us and for democracy uh, if they were completely transparent about um, how they write their stories. Um, can they do more uh, to, to be open about the, the, the shaping of a story? Yeah, they, they can and they have been here and there um, uh, being more um, communicative uh, with their audience than they used to be. Um, so, so I I I don't have a um, a framework for doing this, but I do think um, when one calls for openness, one needs to call for it within a given carved out social domain. Um, it's not going to be the same in in all situations and in all quarters. Michael, there's so much more we could go into um, here. I mean, we could just basically start reading your uh, annotations um, and talking about those. Suffice to say that we have touched the tip of the iceberg in this fascinating and, and critical history. Uh, for anyone interested in the Internet and how information is shared today, this is a history, I think, that needs to be known and, and understood. Uh, the Rise of the Right to Know, Politics and the Culture of Transparency, 1945 to 1975. The author is Professor Michael Shudson of Columbia University joining us today on Hearsay Culture. Thank you so much, Michael, uh, for taking time out of your schedule uh, to chat with us today, and I look forward to further discussions down the road. Uh, David, thank you very much.
Uh, coming up on the show uh, next week, uh, we have I, uh, this is going to be a fun logistical challenge, but we'll pull it off. The four co-editors of the book, The Turn to Infrastructure and Internet Governance. Uh, they are Francesca Muziani of the French National Center for Scientific Research and Professors Derek Cogburn, Laura Donardis, and Annette Levinson of American University. Uh, coming up after that, uh, Professor Neil Natanel of UCLA Law, author of Frame... Of frame ugh. It's, it's been a long day, and it really hasn't been that long. It's still the morning. Uh, maybe I'm still uh, recovering from uh, yesterday's uh, busy day. Uh, Professor Neil Natanel of UCLA Law, let's start that again, author of From Maimonides to Microsoft, The Jewish Law of Copyright Since the Birth of Print. Uh, Professor Paul Ringel of High Point University, author of Commercializing Childhood, uh, another history of how children have been marketed to through uh, children's early children's literature and magazines directed at children uh, at the turn of the last century. And rounding out this quarter on Hearsay Culture Schedule, Professor Missy Cummings of Duke University's Department of Mechanical Engineering and Material Science and Director of Duke's Humans and Autonomy Lab on Autonomous Automobile. Uh, this quarter on KZSU's schedule, you can listen to the show at 2 p.m. Pacific time by going to kzsulive.stanford.edu or by getting the show via podcast at hearsayculture.com at the Center for Internet and Society's iTunes page, as well as by going to the webpage for CIS, that is cyberlaw.stanford.edu. As always, I welcome your comments, suggestions, and feedback by emailing me at dave at hearsayculture.com or by going to the contact form for the show. Thank you for joining me today on Hearsay Culture and on KZSU. Please stay tuned to KZSU for more diverse programming, and have a great day.